0: The Aquarius Project, Chapter 2, Unintended Consequences. Around 1.30 in the morning on February 6, 2017, a police car was creeping along the street near an apartment complex in a Chicago suburb.
1: It was me and the parked cars and uh, empty houses around me.
0: That's Jim Dexter.
1: I'm a police officer with the Village of Lyle.
0: It had been a quiet night so far. Clear skies, no drunk drivers, long silences punctuated by the soft buzzing of a street light or the clink of a chain against a flagpole. But you know what that means. Quiet nights never stay quiet for long. So far, the most pressing public safety issue was overnight parking without a permit.
1: I had just ran a license plate, looked at the screen to see if it was on the list, and looked up. I was facing dead at it. A
0: bright green flash.
1: It looked like, almost like if you were to suddenly crack like one of the chem lights and then just throw it across a dark room.
0: Jim's squad car is equipped with a dash cam. It's always recording, but it's not always saving the recordings. It starts saving automatically if you turn on your red and blue flashing lights, or you can start it yourself by pushing a button, which saves a clip of whatever happened in the previous minute. As soon as he saw the flash, Jim pushed the button.
1: Immediately on our local channel on radio, everybody in my shift started talking about it because everybody had at least seen some form of it, whether it was just the sky lighting up or a streak of it itself. Everybody was curious as to what it was.
0: Jim went back to the station to get a better look at the video on a bigger screen. On Facebook, he and his colleagues found reports of a strange thing in the sky from eyewitnesses across a huge area and a post from the Chicago branch of the National Weather Service.
1: And they asked if anybody had uh, any video. So I sent them the clip over. A little bit later, they called me back and said, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a meteor.
0: Jim didn't realize it, but with the push of a button, he had transported himself to the center of a great cosmic mystery that humans have only recently begun to understand. The connection between what we see in the sky and what happens here on Earth, and what it can tell us about how our planet got here. A meteor is a rock from space, but it's only called a meteor when it's in Earth's atmosphere, putting on a light show. Before it gets to the atmosphere, while it's still out in space, it's called an asteroid, And after the pieces hit the ground here on Earth, we start calling them meteorites. Why do we call space rocks by so many different names? Well, for a long time, people thought they were different things because they looked really different. A meteorite looked like a weird rock, a meteor looked like a big fireball in the sky, and an asteroid looked like a tiny, distant point of light, almost like a star. In the last couple of centuries, astronomers made the connection and worked out the broad outlines of the story. From the asteroid belt, to Earth's atmosphere, to the ground. But when they look at a particular rock, they can't tell us much more than that. In all but a handful of cases, if you gave a meteorite to the world's smartest meteorite expert, they wouldn't be able to tell you precisely where it came from. If you want to know exactly where a meteorite came from, you need a lot more than math. You need videos, ideally many videos, of the meteor in the sky. And of course you need the meteorite itself, so you need to know where it landed. In other words, you have to be lucky enough to find a meteorite from a meteor that happened to be recorded by enough people to give astronomers the data they need to calculate where it came from. So far in the entire history of astronomy, This has happened only 27 times. And it's never happened when the meteor in question crashed into deep water, like our meteor. And that's how Jim ended up here, at the center of this mystery, with the Aquarius Project, the Adler Planetarium's scrappy band of underwater meteorite hunters. The team is hoping to write a detailed life story of our meteor with the help of two scientists named Mark. One who can tell us where it came from, and another who can tell us where it landed. The first Mark works at the Adler. He studies space rocks.
2: Hi, uh, I'm Mark Hammergren. I'm an astronomer at the Adler Planetarium.
0: Remember that fateful email chain that spawned the Aquarius Project? Mark was its other most active participant, after Shane Larson, who we met last episode. Mark is one of the scientists who helped starry-eyed actor-slash-teen programs manager Chris Breske get the project off the ground. He also spent the days after the crash collecting videos of the meteor, because tracking space rocks is kind of his specialty.
2: I specialize in planetary science, so that includes everything in our solar system, but I specialize in asteroids, the so-called small bodies of the solar system.
0: Mark has been fascinated with space, and space rocks in particular, ever since he was a kid, watching NASA's Apollo missions play out on TV and reading science fiction stories. One of his favorite sci-fi authors, Larry Niven, imagined a space-faring future where asteroid miners could make a fortune selling precious space metals. Those stories pulled Mark's imagination all the way out to a space rock gold mine called the Asteroid Belt.
2: Yeah, so the Asteroid Belt, or properly termed the main asteroid belt between uh, Mars and Jupiter, is the home of uh, millions and millions of asteroids.
0: The asteroid belt's orbit cuts between Mars' orbit and Jupiter's orbit around our sun. If you think of an orbit like a lane on a racetrack with the sun at the center, each of the planets is in its own lane. And then there's this other lane where the asteroids are. That's the asteroid belt. Every so often, one of the millions upon millions of asteroids in the asteroid belt drifts a little too close to Jupiter, and Jupiter's gravity is so strong that it yanks the asteroid out of the asteroid belt and sets it on a new orbital path. Years pass, decades, centuries, millennia. Earth and the asteroid continue to revolve around our sun, each on its own orbit, for millions of years, until one day their paths Finally, cross. A meteor screams through Earth's atmosphere, raining meteorites on whatever or whoever is in its path.
2: There are two recorded cases of people who were actually hit by meteorites. A woman in Alabama hit on a ricochet in her living room, and a little boy who was hit on the top of his head by a little tiny fragment of a meteorite, that slowed down through the leaves of a banana tree.
0: Don't worry. He lived to tell the tale.
2: Yeah, he was fine. Got his picture on the cover of, uh, Meteoritics magazine.
0: By the time Mark saw Jim's dashcam video on the local news, he had already been scouring the internet for videos of the meteor and rejecting ones he determined were fake. Mark could tell right away that Jim's video was the real deal, so he called the Lyle Police Department to ask if they'd put him in touch. Jim was out of the office, dodging obstacles and Mission impossible around corners at SWAT training, so Mark had to wait a few days to get his hands on the footage. It was well worth the wait. Just a few decades ago, before there were cameras everywhere, calculating precisely where a meteor came from was a lot harder. You could track eyewitness reports like the ones the American Meteor Society collects, but that would get you a rough estimate at best. Cameras especially dash cams, are much more reliable witnesses than people.
2: If you see a bright one, especially close to the horizon, because those can be seen for longer distances, you're seeing it hundreds of miles away. So cars for over an entire region, if they happen to be pointing in the right direction, they'll capture these videos. And that can all be triangulated. We run that path backwards out into space, follow it long enough because its path gets distorted by Earth's gravity as it comes in. And we can figure out what the orbit of the meteoroid was before it hit the Earth.
0: Once he'd collected all the legitimate videos he could find, Mark set to work on his analysis, taking into account variables like the location and direction of each camera, the field of view, the brightness of the meteor, and potential distortions unique to each model of camera. Jim's video, he said, was especially good. Not just because it had a wide field of view, but also because it contained little clues that allowed him to pinpoint Jim's exact location.
2: You can identify little lines in the asphalt on the road where they had patched cracks, and these patterns are recognizable. So at any given time, you can tell where his car was.
0: With his calculations in hand, Mark says it won't take much for the Aquarius Project to complete the biography of Jim's meteor, our meteor. All we need is one little piece of that
2: rock. Just a tiny piece, smaller than a pea, would be enough. Even just one.
0: Our meteor dropped a lot of pea-sized pieces into Lake Michigan. But how does the team know where to look for them? Mark's math starts at the meteor and goes backward in time. We need data that go forward from the flash, from way up in the sky, all the way down, to the bottom of the lake. And for that data, we turn to the other Mark.
3: I am Dr. Mark Fries. I am a scientist at NASA at Johnson Space Center. And I'm the curator of the NASA's Cosmic Dust Collection.
0: 50,000 tons of cosmic dust fall onto Earth every year. 50,000 tons! That's as heavy as 150 Boeing 747s, all fueled up, full of people and luggage, and ready for takeoff. Most of the dust comes from asteroids and comets, which are icy space rocks that fly close to the sun. NASA sends specialized aircraft into the stratosphere to catch some of that dust on its way down, after which it must be carefully catalogued, and in some cases earmarked for research. That's Mark's job. But true to Aquarius project form, Mark hasn't always been a space scientist. He started his career as an engineer.
3: So I went to graduate school to get a Ph.D. in material science. Improve on technology, come out with with new, new ideas, new concepts, new materials.
0: But a chance encounter with a space rock nudged him into a new orbit. Mark had this friend.
3: We used to give each other a hard time a lot. He waltzed into the lab while I was trying to work and said, hey, I've got this meteorite, can you collect some data?
0: It almost
3: didn't happen. I tried to kick him out. I said, I don't have time to play around. I really got to get work done.
0: Luckily, his friend was persistent.
3: Said, no, 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 this this is really a meteorite. Get out of here. Nobody has meteorites. Meteorites are in, are in museums. And he showed me this thing, and I was just blown away. It was, it was far different than anything I'd ever seen.
0: Mark's friend handed him a piece of the Portalis Valley meteorite. It looked like a handful of dark, jagged stones suspended in shiny, silvery metal. Mark was entranced. How could a thing like this exist in nature? Where did it come from? How had it formed? Once the mystery had taken hold of his imagination, Mark set out to learn everything he could about space rocks. These days... In addition to being NASA's resident cosmic dust expert, Mark is also the guy who figured out exactly where in Lake Michigan our meteor crashed. And the reason he was able to do it isn't that he learned about it in a book or in graduate school or that some senior person at NASA taught him how. It's because he has a brother who's a meteorologist, the weather kind.
3: My brother is a career meteorologist who was in the Air Force. And uh, we were just joking around one day over beers, over, you know, what, what is it about, whatever, you know, our genetic makeup that we both have, apparently some gene for fascination with things that fall from the sky.
0: The conversation was veering into a no-holds-barred brother-off about whose job was easier and who had the rightful claim on the word meteor, when they realized their jobs had something important in common.
3: You know, there's no reason why, if we're talking about falling things, You know, that uh, weather radars that he uses to look at falling rain and hail and sleet shouldn't — there's no reason why they shouldn't pick up falling stones.
0: English borrows the word meteor from an old Greek word that referred to anything up in the atmosphere — everything from a light rain shower to a giant green fireball. That's why we call weather experts meteorologists. Weather radars are perfect for picking up meteor falls, not only because they're designed to measure things that fall from the sky, but also because, unlike cameras, they cover pretty much everywhere. And they're always recording data.
3: You may have seen one, you know, driving around on the highways or around the country at some point. There are large white domes with, inside that dome, there's a radar spinning away. And its radar spins 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all year round.
0: And even in radar data... It turns out meteors know how to make an entrance.
3: It appears out of nowhere, literally, in the middle of of a clear sky with no other weather around. You know, this must be it.
0: The key difference between meteors and other stuff a radar might pick up in a mostly clear sky is that they appear at high altitudes and work their way down through the lower altitudes until they crash. Nothing that isn't weather-related rushes toward the ground like that
3: as opposed to you know, clouds, they move horizontally. Uh, even birds and, and insects and such all move horizontally. Something that falls vertically in radar data is, is, is quite unusual.
0: The pattern is so distinctive that Mark has been able to spot meteor falls over the United States and Canada and weather records dating back to the late
3: 90s. To date, uh, we found uh, two dozen meteorite falls for which meteorites have been recovered. And we've got another, another dozen or so on top of that that for one reason or another haven't been recovered. And one of those is the Lake Michigan meteorite fall that uh, the Aquarius Project is after.
0: Scientific instruments, creative problem solving, and a little luck have gotten us this far. But the future of meteorite hunting might depend less on scientists like Mark and Mark, and more on people like you. You can report a meteor to the American Meteor Society if you see one, or if you're lucky, you can capture one on video and share it. You can even look up radar data on the internet.
3: All these different sources are suddenly becoming available. It's becoming a much more public event, a much more, the term citizen science is used, and I think that's appropriate here. This is something that people sitting at home with their computer can start to figure out on on their own from public sources.
0: Of course, even if you're not a scientist right now, once you start doing science, there's no telling where you might stop. Mark can attest.
3: If anyone had ever put a meteorite in my hand when I was, I don't know, in high school and said, hey, you could try to help figure this out, I think that would have that made a big impression.
0: That exact thing happened to Chris Bresky, except he was in middle school at the time. And the awe-inspiring prehistoric object somebody put in his hand was a different kind of rock.
4: I... Loved dinosaurs.
0: You remember Chris, the Aquarius Project leader and Adler Planetarium teen wrangler.
4: Why do I say past tense? I love dinosaurs. I still do.
0: When Chris was a kid, his parents took him to the San Diego Natural History Museum.
4: They couldn't drag me away from the dinosaur exhibit, and you got to see the paleontologist working um, in the lab. And one of these scientists just saw how enthusiastic I was um, about it and how many questions I asked, and they said, you know what? Come on back.
0: I called the museum and tried to find this person, but nobody could confirm her identity. She may have been a scientist or an educator or a volunteer, but whoever she was, she brought Chris and his parents back into the lab.
4: And she showed me these rows and rows of all these fossils.
0: After a crash course in shark teeth, she picked up a larger, roughly cylindrical fossil and handed it to him.
4: And she's like, this um, is a prehistoric whale femur.
0: A femur is a leg bone. In humans, it's the one that connects the pelvis to the knee. Modern whales don't have legs, but the mammals that evolved into whales did. As those legs became less useful over many generations, the bones that made them up got smaller and smaller and eventually disappeared. The science educator person explained all this to Chris and impressed on him that it took millions of years for those ancient proto-whales to lose their legs And this chunk of petrified bone was there. A single link in the mind-bendingly long chain of events that made up the 3.8 billion year history of life on Earth.
4: It took me there. and This human being took the time to tell me the story and brought me into it. And then she said, keep it. Take it with you. And I still have it to this day.
0: I had a lot of questions for this lady. Did she give away fossils to all the kids? Or was there something about Chris that made her want to bend her own rules? Did she even remember Chris? How did she end up working in a science museum in the 90s? But it's probably just as well that I couldn't find her. When she took the time to stoke Chris's curiosity, she gave him a great gift. She's a permanent fixture in his story a link in the chain of events that brought us all here to the Aquarius Project. But it's not just her. All of us are characters in other people's lives. And everyone we meet has the potential to set our own stories on a new trajectory. Nobody understood this better than the Aquarius Project's very own SWAT-certified suburban police officer and dash cameraman, Jim Dexter. When I talked to Jim about his part in the project, he seemed reluctant to take any credit for it. All he had done was push a button.
1: I just happened to be in a perfect, unobstructed angle to it. It was just pure coincidence that I happened to be in the exact spot that I was in, in order to capture the full event.
0: But I think by the end of our conversation, he was beginning to realize that he really had brought something important to the project. It wasn't just that he was in the right place at the right time. It was everything he did before that. Becoming a police officer, working the night shift, having the presence of mind to push that button and create a permanent record of what he'd seen. Learning to think quickly and think ahead and think about how your actions, however insignificant they may feel at the
1: time, matter. We have these daily interactions with people and we never really know how our interactions are going to change the path of someone's life we never really find out that after information just something as simple as you know waving to a kid in a restaurant can have that unintended consequence and so for me the unintended consequence of hitting record to capture this cool green globe glowing in the sky, and then the opportunity that it is given, the educational opportunities that are now being afforded you know, to the, these high school students, um, to the professionals in that field, it, it's it's awesome.
0: If the Aquarius Project can recover even one little meteorite, they'll be able to say this rock Came from that spot in the asteroid belt. And studying the composition of the rock will help scientists understand something about the conditions that led to the formation of our solar system, our planet, us.
1: I don't think that I've really been able to fully express how I feel about it yet um, just because I, I still don't quite understand how just simply hitting record um, was able to, to kick all of this off um, and, and allow you guys to do what you're doing, I, I just think, I think it's awesome.
0: The Aquarius Project, and the scientific community as a whole, needs Jim because of who he is. It needs kids who love science fiction and dinosaurs, brothers who tease each other, and people who think about how their actions might affect their community. There's no way of knowing where the next flash of insight will appear or who will hold the next crucial piece of the puzzle. Maybe it's an artist, or an office manager, or a teacher, or a dishwasher. Maybe it's you. Next time on The Aquarius Project, we meet some high school kids who were handed a meteorite and told, hey, you could try to help figure this out. And by the way, I was not kidding when I said you could make a meaningful contribution to scientific research. You can do it right now with Zooniverse, the citizen science portal created by the Adler and the University of Oxford in the UK. It's free to join our community and you don't need any special training. Start classifying galaxies, hunting for exoplanets, and so much more right this second at zooniverse.org. The Aquarius Project is a production of the Adler Planetarium with music by Audio Network. It was written by me, Aubrey Henretti, and produced by Aaron Cahoe. Our logo was designed by Orilla Petro. Special thanks to Jim Dexter, Mark Hammergren, Mark Fries, and Chris Breske. Follow the Adler Planetarium on Twitter and Instagram at Adler Planet or on Facebook at Adler Planetarium. Visit our website at adlerplanetarium.org.